The international break is upon us. We've got recaps galore. We're looking forward to the EPL, Serie A, Bundesliga, La Liga, everything that you want, international soccer, international football, however you want to call it, call it that. This is Crossing Broad FC. I am Russell Joy, at Joy on Broad, joined as always by my co-host, Phil Kaidel On Twitter, you can find him at, at Phil Kaidel And we are also joined with a spy special guest, Kevin Kincaid, you can find him on Twitter, at Kevin underscore Kincaid, uh, a former beat writer for the Philadelphia Union of MLS. It's going to be an exciting show. Uh, Phil, let's uh, let's start with you. How are you feeling after the international break? Do you enjoy international breaks in the middle of or even in the beginning of club seasons? Certainly, I enjoy international breaks a lot more at the beginning of the season. At this point, the idea that they would interfere with the end of all the league seasons and the run-up to a World Cup with two weeks of matches where all anyone wants to see is who gets hurt and which teams actually try because some have qualified for the World Cup and some have not is borderline offensive and silly. And all you have to do is watch these matches to see that 65 to 70% of the players don't care. I'm with you, man. Well, listen, it's great to be with you. It's great to be with you on uh, CBFC. There we go. uh, Episode two. This is is episode two, right? This is episode two. I hate uh, the international breaks. Because I don't like, okay, it's meaningless friendly. It's like, I don't give a crap, you know? And especially, like, I'm I'm kind of conditioned over years of covering the union to, like, with the MLS schedule to bump, like, headfirst into these, like, uh, you know, these momentum-killing breaks in the middle of the playoffs and, like, the middle of the playoff race and stuff like that, you know, September and October and whatever the hell. So, uh, but it's interesting because there's some MLS games anywhere where they played through it. Uh, the union uh, obviously did not play. They played one game at the beginning of March, two weeks off. They played another game, two weeks off, and then they're traveling to Colorado. So uh, that's my input on that. I I also hate the international breaks. I don't understand them, especially as you're getting prepared for a World Cup. I don't really care all that much about friendlies, and I especially don't like uh, a few of the things that it's set off, especially you're looking at you know Serie A right now, and Napoli's only two points behind Juventus, and you're going to put in a week-long gap before we get to kind of get to some kind of resolution there. Uh, you've got Dortmund chasing Schalke for second place in the Bundesliga. You're making me wait another week. If you're a Bayern fan, you're, you've mm-hmm. now been forced to wait another week for them to clinch. La Liga, uh, <laughs> La Liga's a runaway. Well, but, you've got you know, nobody, nobody chasing Manchester City. <laughs> it's yeah, like, I mean, there's not really, yeah. You know, so for some of the leagues, I guess it doesn't really matter all that much because the a, a lot of the uh, the top teams are, are a foregone conclusion. Maybe you've got teams in fourth chasing third or third chasing second, but it it just sucks. It, it I just hate the way that it, it breaks up a schedule, and especially for um, you know we were seeing as as Union fans, uh, mm-hmm. which we're not going to get into too much on that podcast. That's what Kevin's other podcast, It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia, is for. There you go. Uh, you know the the way that it just kind of takes away from from a week of uh of potential mls there's too much there's too much the problem with the international game is that there's too much uh there's not enough meaning really uh 
how would I explain this? Like, like these these friendlies obviously don't mean anything. The result doesn't matter, right? There's not a lot of meaningful soccer that matters, you know, to the fans, I guess. But at the same time, it means a lot to these guys to be able to put on the shirt and to represent their country and to play for their country, right? So the, the what it means to them is not really congruent with what it means to everybody else as far as results and, like, you know, the actuality of, like, okay, Spain, you know, playing Argentina or whatever. Yeah, it's nice to see a bunch of superstars in the field together, but the most meaningful stuff is UEFA Champions League and uh, the, the leagues themselves, the domestic leagues themselves, the cup competitions, you know. So that's why it's. I think it's kind of corny every time the World Cup rolls around every year that the casual soccer fans get on board because Plus, it's a tournament that happens once every four years. So what, you know? Plus, the one thing I always hear the soccer intelligentsia Babylon about is how these great players from these fine and terrific international sides need time to coalesce and figure out how to play together. Let me tell you something. Good musicians need about three minutes to play whatever song you want them to play. (laughs) And great soccer players with a ball and a pitch that they've seen before will figure it out real quick. I mean, Jesse Lingard and Raheem Sterling are not even the best players in the world. But they played pretty well together for England this week, and I don't think they spent a lot of time together outside the occasional week or so they're on the England national team. Yeah. Yeah, Kelly and Mbappe looked pretty uh, pretty good following up on you know what we talked about in our first episode here, like guys who uh, who have been questioned at least in in Champions and have been questioned a little bit in their domestic leagues. Uh, certainly, guys like Paul Pogba, who you know apparently wasn't good enough to start Manchester United's uh, you know ultimate downfall you know, is, is able to go out and, and play at a very high level for the French national team. So I, I don't know. I, I just don't get it. And I, I, I just hate the international breaks. I, I don't enjoy them. There's, and especially in a world cup year, like I'm going to get all the matchups that I want to see. I, I don't need to watch a friendly between, you know, two international sides that don't care all that much. And, you know, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute, but like, I especially don't really care about the U.S. men's national team right now, especially if they're not going to roll out a lineup that kind of gives me a a massive glimpse into the future with all the guys I really wanted to see. And a guy like Jonah Gonzalez, who you had in your in your clasp, who you then let go because you're a bunch of, you know, moronic, egotistical maniacs who, like, I guess apparently didn't think that, you know, he was going to he was going to ever consider leaving for El Tree, you know, I. I freaking hate them. Well, I just, I, mean, I, I, I hate, I hate the whole thing. <laughs> Theoretically, I mean, it's not so much of a blow if you lose a guy like Gonzalez if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing elsewhere. You know, I mean, we have how many millions of kids in this country? You know, and if the youth setup is working the way it is, and you're cultivating the talent the way it is, you probably have you know three dozen you know JGs running around out there. So that's that's the problem is that it's sort of compound. It was it was another thing that sort of snowballed on this. We didn't make it into the World Cup. Uh, we're voting for a new president. Uh, you know, Jurgen Klinsmann and Bruce Arena didn't know what the hell they were doing. It, it was all sort of like part of that whole, you know, string of, of, of failures, if you will. You know, but I mean, if you're doing your job and you're you're getting into the inner cities and you're you know cultivating Hispanic talent, Mexican American talent, and telling those people that you actually care, other people like him. Uh, then it's it, then missing out on one kid doesn't doesn't necessarily mean so much. I don't I, you know obviously I don't know what it's like to be one of these kids and have have to make that choice. Something I'm sure is very difficult for them. But you have to know that you're going to lose some of these kids, and you can't worry about it if you're doing your your homework and doing your diligence on on the rest of them that are out there. You know, so theoretically this country's big enough. I mean, we've said it for for long enough. This country's big enough that you have enough talent to pull from if you miss on some of those guys. You know, 
Yeah, but you know, I think it kind of speaks to also one of the larger issues that exists within you know within the game in this country, and it's just it's so cost prohibitive to a lot of the kids that you're talking about, to a lot yeah. of the the yeah. raw talent kids. You know, I, I have a student who I who I was asking about. He plays at a I guess at a local club, and plays at a pretty high level. Um, and I had asked him, you know, like what are the actual fees? So we're we're based around Philly, right? So I said, like, how much is that team really to play on in a year? And he said, given the registration costs and the cost of some of the tournaments and everything, you're looking at upwards of like three, four grand, yeah. right? And then depending on, you know, how far your team advances and additional tournaments and everything, you could be looking at a few more thousand dollars within a year. And that's for a, for a high school aged kid to go and play a sport that in other countries, you know, you go out into dirt or into like a makeshift field mm-hmm. and, you know, your your country doesn't fail you. Your country ends up finding you know, the diamond and the rough and, and they elevate them. It, it, you know, I think we, Phil and I have talked about this before. Uh, I don't remember if it was on the last episode or if it was on a test show that we had done, but the cost of the game and, and the, the people that the game should really be geared to, it, it doesn't line up. Yeah. You know, it's, no, you're it, right, man. it's Dude, a shame. I, not to get off. I know you guys had kind of like a little rundown here, but I saw that firsthand when I was refing. you know, I repped for like seven or eight months. And so I was, I was around all these, these big tournaments in the middle of nowhere in New Jersey. There was this, this big, like uh, it, was, it was literally a turf farm. Like they literally grew grass and then harvested the grass and would sell it to people. You know, like like a sod farm or whatever the hell, right? And uh, they'd have these tournaments down there that I'd, I would ref like eight games in a row. Teams down there from like Toronto and uh, you know Western Pennsylvania and upstate New York and Vermont and stuff like that. And I'm sitting here thinking like, how much do these people pay to travel down here? You know, um, and then you look at the kids who, for example, who are like homegrown players. The very first homegrown player. Um, for the Philadelphia Union was an African immigrant who was plucked from West Philadelphia, you know? <laughs> so it's always been this idea of like turning the, uh, turning the catchment upside down and, and casting the net in a different, in a different way, you know, cause it's, it's always been this, the sport in this region of suburban white kids and they're not getting into those areas that they need to get to. And, and again, you're, you're telling people that they got to spend thousands of dollars to schlep their kids all over the, the, the Eastern seaboard. I mean, that's the biggest problem, you know I mean? So when you, when you do this rehaul, hopefully with the new, with uh, Carlos Cordero in charge, you know, there's some some grassroots change uh, s- starting at the very basic levels. You know what I mean? Yep. This happened to me less than two weeks ago. I mean, both of you know my son plays for a local club, and they had a tournament in suburban Baltimore. They had a four-team flight or draw, however you want to put it, round robin. One of the teams was from Boston. One of the teams was from Maryland. Two of the teams were from Pennsylvania. My entire family drove down past Baltimore into you know southern suburban Baltimore, stayed in the Hampton Inn for two nights, went out to dinner twice, uh, went out to lunch, watched three matches, and then came home. I don't want to think about what that cost us. We don't look at it. But to be brutally honest with you, my return on investment was not that great. And yeah, yeah. I could not believe the thought if I had a child playing for that Boston team who had to presumably drive from Massachusetts to Baltimore to play that tournament. It or made fly. Me my head. Yeah, like, or fly, right? And so, Phil, like, I know that some clubs are like this. Was your club, the stay that you had at the Hampton Inn, was that something where that was mandated by the club that, that your kid had to stay at that hotel and you had to, like, stay for a minimum uh, number of nights? That happens sometimes, but more often than not, Russ... They don't mandate it, but they make it so it would be really difficult not to go along and be in the flow. And my example with that would be the club will say, we've reserved 15 rooms at the Columbia Hampton Inn, and you need to reserve by a month before the tournament. And then 
I tell my son, uh, yeah, your teammate's going to be at the Hampton Inn, but I think I want to stay at the Garden Inn and save $200. And the next thing I hear is, but then I'm staying away from my teammates, and we have a longer drive, and it's not fair, and why are you so cheap? And you end up going to the Hampton Inn. <sighs> Kids. They're great. So what did you have on the rundown, Russ? I didn't need right. to derail you with the whole with No, my, but uh, you know what? That's uh that's some it's of international the, week. My yeah, Tuckaho turf beauty. farm uh, <laughs> sidebar there, you know. It's the beauty of, yeah. of crossing broad FC. We uh we kind of eventually come back around to uh to what our rundown was. Well, Kevin, since you're here and you've got such an extensive history with MLS, I uh, wanted to get your thoughts and and obviously Phil's on Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Uh, you know, signing with LA Galaxy, leaving Manchester United on what some people would consider to be unfinished grounds. He didn't really deliver uh, quite as much as he has in the past. He's always won his domestic league. It did not happen in his lone season with Manchester United. He did win the Euro- the Europa League with the team. Um, I I would still consider that to be at least somewhat unfinished business for him. Uh, the the skeptics who said all along that they didn't know if Zlatan would be able to be successful in the pre- in the Premier League because of speed, uh, speed of play, lack of mobility, and yada yada yada. I think they still have a little bit of ammo here. Now he moves to MLS on on not even a designated player deal. What can we expect from a Zlatan Ibrahimovic who's clearly slowed down and um, you know is recovering from an, a massive ACL injury? Well, I mean, they certainly didn't. Some of the failures they had at Manchester United certainly weren't due to him. You know, I mean, he had, what, like 17 goals or something in 28 appearances. And the irony is that he wouldn't probably wouldn't have ended up over here if it wasn't for the knee injury. You know, if he comes back healthy um, and plays for Manchester United again, trying to, you know, take care of that unfinished business, as you said, then he probably doesn't end up uh, in Los Angeles in the first place. But, I mean, what you can expect is a guy who scored goals everywhere he's gone. Um, you know, that's never changed anywhere he's got. I mean, you look at his goal-scoring record everywhere. It's impeccable, you know. I mean, people said the same thing about him going to PSG, like, oh, he's taking a step down in, in, in that league or whatever. But, you know, even in a lot of the European competitions, before they'd eventually play a better team, he would always score a bunch of goals there too. So, I, I mean, I think you're seeing a guy who's as, as good as they come, you know. I mean – People are always going to say, well, you know, he's he, magically a guy who scored 17 goals in the Premier League is now automatically going to be shit, you know, just because he comes to MLS because it's a retirement league, right? You know, and it's where washed up stars go to get the final paycheck and you sit on the beach or whatever, like Ashley Cole. But And while there's this movement in MLS to play your kids and put all these younger American kids in and, you know, sort of build up this new generation of, of domestic talent, and they're getting away from the Steven Gerrards and the Frank Lampards and the Andrea Pirlos and the the Drogbas of this world. Zlatan's like a guy you don't pass on, you know. I mean, just strictly for marketing purposes. I mean, that gives you international uh, eyeballs on the game. L.A. plays L.A. on Saturday for the first time ever, and Zlatan might play in that game. So uh, that game will probably get higher ratings than most of the other MLS games of the last year or two. Um, I mean, beyond that, he's just... Is that game one that you're only going to be able to catch on YouTube TV? (laughs) No, that That was was actually... (laughs) That's the one really interesting thing. Uh, And I I don't know, the people who don't really follow MLS all that much probably aren't aware of this, but LAFC struck an exclusive partnership with YouTube TV to broadcast all their games. They're not being broadcast locally in Los Angeles, which is... I don't know if I would say it's insane, but it's certainly an interesting marketing ploy. Well, I mean, I see what they're targeting. You know, they're going for a younger, um, you know, millennial crowd. You know, obviously that's how the MLS fans trend anyway. You know, you're not going for the guy who was watching the Phillies bomb out today. You know, it's two different demographics 
entirely, you know. So the young 25-year-old kid who knows Snapchat and YouTube, you know, he's, he's probably uh, probably makes sense for him, you know, because how many people are sitting around and watching TV in, Lo- in Los Angeles anyway, you know. Um, I'll, I'll tell you something you will see uh, when Zlatan comes to MLS. You'll see a lot of stuff like I saw at Talent Energy last spring when David Villa chipped Andre Blake from 50 yards just because he could. <laughs> Zlatan yeah. is going to pick some corners on some people. He's going to break some ankles. He's going to tear somebody's ACL. He's also going to push somebody over in the box, and the refs won't call it because he's Latan. Look, you're going to get what you pay for when you buy a ticket to watch him in that league. You're going to get to watch him play. They are not going to impede him or get in his way in any meaningful way. Quality is quality, man, no matter what it is. I mean, Drogba was 30-whatever when he came over here, and he scored a bunch of goals. Lampard, once he got over all the injuries, he scored a bunch of goals. Uh, Thierry Henry scored like 50 goals for, for New York. I mean, in, in, in some way, shape, or form, I mean, that, that touch, that talent never goes away. Um, you know, is he going to bust his ass for the Galaxy? No. Um, but, but most DPs don't. Um, so, what, but that's not what you're bringing him over here for. You know, you're bringing him here to score goals, and that's what he's going to do. Now, L.A. does already have a really, really good striker on the roster in Ola Camara. So I don't know what they're going to do with him or if they're going to play two strikers or if they're going to have the you know, the Dos Santos brothers play behind him or whatever. But Siggy Schmidt's going to have his work uh, cut out for him trying to just manage that team and manage the egos at the same time, you know? How long will it take Zlatan to explode for getting poor quality service? I'd like 10 seconds. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you'll probably see it. Like, if he, if, yeah, if he plays Saturday, you'll probably see it, you know? But... Um, <sighs> That's all right. I'm actually, I, mean, I don't I'm, think anybody. I don't. You know. I think that the good thing about that is I think everybody. Everybody's expecting it. You know. It's not yeah. like you know Frank Lampard comes over here all mild manner, then he blows up and people are saying, oh, oh, what now? You know. I mean, like you know what you're getting with Zlatan. You know. Yeah, I mean, Phil. The last episode we kind of talked about what was going on in L.A. with LAFC. Um, you know, selling out a, a massive stadium, whereas uh, what is it? L.A. L.A. Galaxy are they playing in a? in like a dog park at this point do i have those reversed at this point lafc is playing in the bank of california stadium which was built in the past year and a half and opened on april 29th and is glorious and soccer specific and in a neighborhood of los angeles and yeah of course that makes sense because what did they have to do to form a new team a second team in that market quote unquote they had to show that they were invested and had people who would pay which is why you have the likes of Will Ferrell putting their money in this thing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Will Ferrell didn't put that much money into it, but the point is his name's on it, and I'm sure his involvement in it drew other people to it. Now you have Galaxy, and you say, well, Galaxy's playing in this other situation. You know what the Galaxy are playing in? StubHub Center, which is formerly the Home Depot Center, which is a multiple sports, multiple-use sports complex on the campus of California State University. Oh boy. And the Chargers were playing there. It's in Carson. <laughs> So, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah, the Galaxy have a worse situation. But as I alluded to last week, I watched uh, DC play in what was essentially a festival ground, like a soccer local plex. soccer plex yeah, where Maryland, youth sports man. were going on. So un- until the league can get its head around the fact that appearances matter and People care about what it looks like on the TV. People care about what it looks like when they go to the venue. It's not good enough. And yes, LAFC has a wonderful stadium. And yes, Atlanta is playing before 72,000 people in a dome. Well, that's great. But across the league, man, even Talent Energy, a, a building I really like and I love to watch matches in, 
I don't really want to go to Chester, and I don't want to take my kids to Chester. And if that makes me a bad person, I apologize. So the league has a problem that they have to address with that situation in the next 10 years, or they are going to continue to be the league of last resort. Yeah, I hear you, man. I mean, look, part, part of the thing with the D.C. too is that they're, you know, they're, they're not going to be an RFK anymore, and they're getting their brand-new stadium built at, across from the National Stadium, so they put them in this stupid soccer plex in the meantime. But I don't know, would you rather play, you know, in front of 10,000 people at RFK or 5,000 people in this rinky-dink, you know, piece of crap? Well, we did a couple uni games down there in the U.S. Open Cup, like in 2010 and 2011, and uh, or 2011 and 2012, and there's, like, no locker room. It's just like a, it's a gymnasium, and they put up, like, uh, I don't know, like uh, barricades to for, to let the players change, you know. And then you got like New, Eng- yeah, New England. It's very... You got like New England playing in like the you know the Patriots Stadium still. You know that that looks terrible. They're so playing Phil's up in right. Gillette with with no fans. Yeah, Phil's right. With all but that. it's very hard for me to understand how neither the Naval Academy nor the University of Maryland, much less Johns Hopkins or any number of places in the general vicinity of DC, yeah. don't have a building that they're willing to let out for a few weeks. But they can't Especially play. They can't the borrow land over for like two games. Like they can't. They, the Redskins can't give them a loaner for like two games in the off season. Like is that too much yeah. to ask? You know, it seems it's, easy. It's maybe that's the problem, right? <laughs> like it's just corporate overthinking. A very simple solution. Well, the, I mean, the to, union. It's a very simple. The union when issues. PPL was being built in 2010, they just played two games at the link. You know, the Eagles were like, "Cool, you know, come here and play." You know, I mean, Smolensky had a good relationship with. Uh, Sikevich and all them down there and said, why don't you do it here? And that was it. So, I, you know, D.C. United instead goes and plays where a bunch of kids play, you know. I wanted to go back to the point that was made a moment ago about Zlatan. Um, and Kevin's point that quality is quality and it never goes away. It's great that Ibrahimovic is coming to MLS because it's going to draw eyeballs, as Kevin indicated. People are going to watch those matches. People are going to pay to show up at those matches. He's going to create headlines and he's going to carve out time on highlight shows and get stories written about him for the probably two years or three years, the max that he'll play there. However, I continue to say that MLS relying on people like Lampard and Drogba and now Zlatan to come and pump things up for MLS and fluff it, if you will, is an ongoing concern for the league. This would be a much better situation if Zlatan coming off a crippling knee injury and without the movement he used to have and coming off a eh, less than successful tenure at Manchester United, let's say. If the league, all of the clubs except for maybe the very bottom dwellers, could be like, you know what, we're, we're okay. We have enough young talent. We don't need to bring this guy in and just create fake interest for a short period of time because we want to develop great players and young players. But unfortunately, the league hasn't developed to that point yet. And I'm not sure it's going to develop to that point in the next 10 years. You're going to be seeing this sort of thing. You know, they talk about Wayne Rooney's going to make this move at some point. There are probably a dozen guys who are looking at this as their final landing place. And as long as this continues to happen in MLS, it's a shame and it's not great for the league. Yeah, but the numbers are going down. Um, You know, I know that, like, Andrea Pirlo running around and playing no defense doesn't help the league or make the league look good at all, you know, but... Uh, if you run the numbers over the last couple of years, uh, the, the average age of a foreign signing that comes over here now, it's lower than it used to be. You know, I mean, it used to be like 30, you know, whatever year old Robbie Keane and, uh, you know, Lampard and the, the Beckhams of the world and stuff like that. But now like, you look at what Atlanta's doing, for example, like going and getting like like Hector Vialba and 
Miguel Almiron and Yamil Assad, like these 22 and 21 and 23 year old, you know, South American kids and, and going the DP route that way. So yeah, you, you still do have like a, you know, an outlier, like a Zlatan every, every so often, but I think the, the league and the, the individual teams are getting, um, getting better when it comes to that, you know? It'll be really interesting to see going forward, like who's the next big star to enter the league. I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed that Zlatan picked the team that he did. The rumor about Galaxy, I feel like, was out there a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was out there for at least the last couple transfer windows. And I, I really did think that at some point he might have glommed on with an expansion side. I thought that there was a, a decent enough chance that LAFC might have you know wanted to make that big splash with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe maybe if it had happened in the last transfer window where he could have um, you know been ready to go, um, you know for for training camp and for all the buildup that would come with uh, with joining a new side. But I guess that was, you know, at least part due to the ACL injury. But. It's interesting, man. I, I, you know, the age thing in MLS is kind of weird because uh, you, when you look back through the history of the league, you do find some examples of guys who played like into their late thirties and were great. Um, you know, Guillermo Barascalotto, um, who went on to coach Boca Juniors, um, played with the Columbus Crew until he was like thirty eight, thirty seven, thirty eight years old. You know, and he won a title with them back in two thousand eight. Um, Vicente Sanchez was another guy who played until he was like 37. Um, I, I, I wonder how old Valderrama was too, like when he played for MLS, like in the nineties, like in the early days, like they got some quality out of some of those dudes, but you know, a lot of that sentiment with the retirement league just came from like, um, you know, European fans who were saying like, well, these guys are washed up and shit now, you know, but like they only say that cause they come to MLS. Like if Zlatan Ibrahimovic goes back to play in like, for Malmo in Sweden, do you have people saying, well, you know, Sweden is a retirement league? No, I mean, it's just like a, um, you know, stereotype that gets associated with MLS. And I mean, with, with, I understand, you know, some of these guys are past their prime and they're done, but they, the league is getting better with that. And they are getting away from some of the 30 year old guys and the numbers coming down a little bit more, you know, Kevin, thanks for, uh, for hopping on. Yeah, man. Yeah. No, glad, uh, glad I could join you guys and, uh, I'll leave you, uh, I'll leave you to it. We look forward I, to doing it again. Yeah, Kevin. for sure. I uh, I will now get back to the um to the whatever's going on in our Slack chat right now. People are going crazy about Gabe Kapler, so I will now turn my eyes to that train wreck. Well, that's going to be that's simply delightful. It's uh, <laughs> cheers, it's fellas. Pre- this is pretty much like pouring acid into your eyes at this point. If uh, we haven't really talked about Slack on this podcast at all, but our our Slack chat. If you listen to any of the other Crossing Broad podcasts, uh, Slack comes up at. I don't know, drinkable, drink game, drinking gameable uh, levels, and it's it it is a an absolute mess between Philadelphia is on fire right now between Gabe Kapler's stupid decisions to pull Aaron Nola and Joel Embiid having it, an orbital fracture and concussion, the entire city is burning, and our Slack chat is a you know perfect microcosm of what's going on. An orbital fracture and concussion caused by. Markel Fultz. Specifically Markel Fultz's shoulder, which may or may not have ever been injured. So if you're listening to this and you don't follow Philadelphia sports, that's about as as much Philadelphia sports as we're going to get into this. But uh, if you, if you follow from a different market, that's kind of what we're going on or what we're going through right now. So uh, bear with us. So Phil, this uh, this USA Paraguay game. Did you did you uh, really carve it out on your calendar as something you wanted to watch? Not only did I not carve it out on my calendar as something I wanted to watch, I watched the highlights on one of the many television programs I watched to catch up on things. 
kind of through slots in my fingers that I created by opening my fingers and maybe cracking my eyes open just a little bit <laughs> because I had already read some of the match reports. And when I heard that the only goal scored in the match was by Bobby Wood, that basically told me everything I needed to know. But just for the sake of being a professional and, and being informed, uh, I did a little more digging and watched a little bit more of the highlights and, and more of the commentary. So they win over Paraguay 1-0 in front of an announced crowd of 9,825 people. Stop the presses. I have <laughs> been many, many places oh with less interesting things going on where more than 9,825 people showed up, were paid to show up. And I got news for you. I don't think there's 9,825 people in that stadium in that night watching that friendly. I think it's probably closer to seven or eight. Um, and I think, as often happens in these situations, you see a lot more bodies on the TV because people are moving out of the cheap seats they bought into the good seats that are empty. And now it looks like, yeah, it's sort of passable. And I guess there's a little bit of noise when the United States does something. But no, this was not a good advertisement for the United States men's national team, for U.S. soccer, for anybody. And again, they start Darlington Nagby. They start DeAndre Yedlin. And people stick up for Yedlin, and that's fine. Maybe he's good enough. I, I really don't know. Bobby Wood is clearly not good enough. And I'm not sure there's anything Bobby Wood... Bobby Wood could have scored four goals in this match. And it would not have changed anybody's opinion of what he is or who he is. Meanwhile... We, we talked earlier about them losing uh, Gonzalez to Mexico. And I do agree with Kevin. I know he's not here to respond to what I'm about to say, and I'm not going on a rant or anything. My only quibble with Kevin's point that losing a player like Gonzalez is not that big a deal because Gonzalez is a dime a dozen if you do the proper scouting and find players like him within your population. Kevin's totally right about that. The problem is the timing and the optics. Yep. This is a nation that just couldn't scratch out a draw in Trinidad and Tobago to qualify for the World Cup. This is not the time for the United States soccer program or the USMNT specifically to look at a player like Gonzalez and say, well, you got to prove to us that you want to be on this team. If you don't love us, we're not going to commit to you. Yeah, and, because it, w- and it, was, it was both a combination of that and then also if you believe the reports after the fact – it's that not only did the U.S. not send anybody, you know, to his home or to pick up the phone and call him when the rumors were out there about El Tree, you know, really pursuing him. It's the fact that they just seemed indifferent to him leaving. Not only were they indifferent to him leaving, they they almost made it seem aggressively indifferent. Like, we don't need you. You're not special. We want you to know that if you come to join the United States soccer and the USMNT, your place isn't guaranteed and you're going to have to bust it. And you have to prove yourself. The, the kid knew that anyway. He's not assuming he's going to come here and start. And if he's, he does assume he's going to come here and start, he'll probably get put in a different place fairly quickly by better players on that team. But that's not the point. The point is you want to show that you as a nation and a national soccer program are open for business with your arms wide open to anybody who has talent because the more talented people we accrue, the better chance we have to put together a 23-man roster that can compete internationally. And the Gonzalez fiasco is then followed by getting back to this Paraguay match. Tim Weah plays like 15 or 10 minutes or some nonsense like that. And Novakovic plays 20. And I don't get it. I, I don't know why you wouldn't play potential difference makers like those two for 
70 minutes. They should start. They should play 60 or 70 minutes. If it doesn't work out for them, they've gotten their cap. They've gotten blooded, as they like to say in this sport. And you can kind of see what you have with them in a relatively low-stakes environment. But instead, they continue the same unnecessary stupidity where they make these kids wait until the very end for their uh, little curtain calls at the end of the match, even though they haven't played all match. They basically have to beg for their minutes at the end and you know run like maniacs for 10 minutes to try to impress somebody, a system that hasn't worked in 30 years. Yes. It's infuriating. And I, I guess I kind of would go back and, and clarify you know, something that I had said earlier. You know, I, I made it sound like they were running out Josie Altador and Michael Bradley, and it wasn't that. It's just I, I couldn't really find the interest in, in watching this team roll out guys like Yedlin and Nagby again and even Bobby Wood. I don't hate Yedlin. Like, I think Yedlin could actually be a, a decent contributor on the national team in the next World Cup cycle. I'm not too sure about Nagby. He's 27. By the ne- time the next um, the next cycle rolls around, I guess he'd be one of your closer, maybe to being elder statesmen. I don't think he's a bad player. It's just he's not a guy that I need to see on the field right now. And even Bobby Wood, like I, I don't think Bobby Wood's going to light the world on fire. But like I think we know what we what we've gotten out of Bobby Wood. These are times in this next you know World Cup cycle where you really should be getting a lot of these these younger. Um, potential playmakers and potential difference makers on the field. You have nothing to lose, and you certainly have nothing to gain by putting Bobby Wood and Darlington Nagby and DeAndre Edlin out for another game. You know what those players are. It's interesting that they finally, you know, let Matt Miazga play a game because, you know, it, I, now look, I don't follow uh, all of, of what Miazga has been doing over the last couple of years, but I find it really hard to believe that he couldn't have found himself in a legitimate competition for a center back spot. Uh, even as the men's national team was failing, you know, in Trinidad and Tobago at the end. I I just don't know, did his star fall that far out of the sky from being a guy that Chelsea had pursued to, you know, and, and obviously got the rights to, to him now being, you know, a, a guy who's playing in the air division. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around why a guy like, why, like Miazga just couldn't find his way into, you know, even a, a a camp invite and a and a potential rotational spot um, at center back when that was clearly a glaring weakness for the the national team in this past cycle. Well, and this sort of goes back to the point we started with half an hour ago. Nobody really cares about the results of these matches. Um, even this United States men's national team side is a glorified junior varsity side. If you get right down to it, there are players they could use if it were a World Cup qualifier that they didn't use half a dozen of them. So I hear you. I thought Miazga would be more than he is. Uh, and again, I'm not following his progress beyond Chelsea having interest and then suddenly not having so much interest. Uh, I don't know what Carter Vickers' talent level is. Uh, I think I do know what Wood's talent level is, and I think I have a pretty good read on Nagby's. Um, but the point is, they got caught in between. You either play all of the young people who are in your program, who you think have the potential to go to the next level and be contributors when 2022 comes around. Or you play this match full out and you try to hang a three or a four spot on Paraguay. They didn't do either one. They got a totally unsatisfying and dull 1-0 win at home against a side that really isn't that impressive in CONCACAF. And they didn't make use of the possibility or the opportunity to let Wea and players like him get more time 
it's infuriating. Novakovic deserved at least a half in that match. He didn't get it. Let's uh, transition to a game that I think more people were interested about prior to learning that Messi would not be playing, and that was the Spain-Argentina game. I like to, as a Ronaldo fan, imagine that Messi just was so afraid of what Spain was about to do to his team that he feigned an injury. Um, But Messi did not play, and neither did Aguero. Uh, But Spain goes on this massive run and scores uh, and wins the game 6-1. It was 2-1 after 50 minutes, and then the wheels just totally fell off for Argentina. I don't know if we would say that that any of this was necessarily unexpected. Spain is a superior side, I think even in the World Cup cycle coming up, uh, or the World Cup that will be starting in, what, a few months. I would certainly say that Spain on any given day should beat Argentina. I don't, I'm don't. i not a big believer in Argentina outside of the guys they have playing forward. Uh, the defense there just, the defense isn't there for me. Goalkeeping's not at that world-class level. What What did you think of the result? Did you expect anything different? Well, I certainly expected that if they knew Messi wasn't going to play in this match, that they wouldn't go out there and play as though he were out there because that's essentially what they did. Um, they did keep it close. It was 2-1 for a long period of time. But then they absolutely capitulated. And if you know you don't have Messi carrying the ball through midfield and creating a threat um, on the other end of the pitch, then you know at some level that's not the worst thing in the world against Spain, even in a friendly, to pack it in, play one up top, play basically a... You know, Four five one or something like that. Play a Mourinho game. Pretty much, and try not to get a number hung on you. And that's what Argentina ended up doing. Yeah, Messi didn't play, and neither did Aguero. And you know how much I love Aguero. But, you know, they had Higain, they had Benega, they had Rojo, they had Otamendi, Acuna. These are names that people recognize. These are great players in their own right. And they're certainly not players you would associate with the likelihood of going out and losing by five goals and not just losing by five goals but again 2-1 after 50 odd minutes and in the last 40 some minutes to give up four unanswered and ended up being really five unanswered um that's that's unacceptable that's not really good enough and i just it was actually four unanswered i don't see that as being acceptable for argentina and i know that their qualifying run through CONCACAF, what, they didn't cover themselves in glory in that either. But at some point, the alarm clock has to go off for them, doesn't it? This tournament is this summer. They don't have time to go out and lose by five to Spain. They don't have time to go out and lose by five to anybody. And for them to just roll out whatever guys decide to show up in this thing and play Spain is a total mistake in organization. If they wanted to approach these friendlies in this international break this way, they should have played a side that wasn't nearly as good as Spain is. So I'm going to be honest, and I know that people might get upset by this and they might not agree. I don't see this as a a successful South American World Cup this year. I think Argentina's got enough holes that if they're going to put themselves in a in a pretty bad spot, they might advance out of their group round. But I don't see them going that far in the tournament. And Brazil... I I think we're in a spot now where you really have to hope that Neymar is back and fully healthy. But, you know, the stain of the loss that Brazil had to Germany at home in the last World Cup, I think, is is a dark cloud that's going to continue to loom over that team 
until they're able to shake that. And you're certainly not going to be able to do it against Germany. God help you if you're Brazil and you run into this German squad at any point. It will it will potentially be a repeat unless you go into a uh, you know Mourinho bunker style and just hope to limit the damage. I'm about to betray myself and prove myself a total hypocrite, so I apologize in advance. Uh, I got done saying that nobody cares about the results in these friendlies and nobody's paying attention and half the players aren't trying and all of that stuff. But you do have 1-0 Brazil over Germany on Tuesday. I'm not saying that Gabriel Jesus' 37th-minute goal, which got Brazil this win over Germany, is going to cure the hangover and stench of getting drummed in the last World Cup the way they did. The only thing I will say, though, is I do feel like, especially when you're talking about World Cup, they say in baseball that momentum is the next day starting pitcher. It's a short tournament. It It's a long tournament for the average soccer fan because it goes on for weeks and weeks. But in the lives of these players, it's relatively short because they're used to playing 10-month seasons. And this thing takes, what, six, eight weeks, and then it's over. So if Brazil, who really has the level of talent to stay with a Germany or a France or a Spain on its day, if they play well and coalesce and get hot, I trust them not to just fall apart at the sight of the German players walking on the pitch in another final I don't, or a semifinal. I don't think that's going to happen to them again necessarily that way. If you are a Brazil fan, you've got Costa Rica, Switzerland, and Serbia. You're getting out of that group stage. And if you've got um, Argentina, if you're an Argentine fan, you're also facing a scenario where uh, I think you're in a, a pretty favorable spot. So Croatia, Iceland, Nigeria. Um, they'll get out of group stages, but like I said, I'm not too sure that they're going to make it through the uh, the knockout rounds. Argentina has a much harder go of it, only because they haven't been very good for a long time now. That being said, the group they drew in the World Cup uh qualifying round is not as good as CONCACAF. So it shouldn't take that much for them to accrue enough points to get through the knockout. But at the same time, just like I said that momentum is the next day starting pitcher, if Argentina goes out and doesn't get a result in the first of the three qualifying matches, group stage matches, then I think you might start to see some concern on some faces. It was interesting to see that England ends up drawing with a an Italy squad that's obviously not going to go to the World Cup. Uh, I don't I don't really know what the big takeaway is from that game, except, you know, kind of like I said, you've got an England squad that really should be focusing on getting themselves squared away, uh, working out the kinks. And this Italian, the Italian squad had nothing to prove, except maybe that, you know, they, they feel like they deserve to have been in the cup. England draws with Italy 1-1. This is a good result for England, in my opinion. Jamie Vardy scores. I watched a little bit of this match, and Jamie Vardy ran onto the pitch. I'm used to Vardy looking like a drowned rat and somebody that I wouldn't want to run to in a dark alley, especially if after he'd had six or seven drinks. Jamie Vardy ran out on the pitch for this friendly. He looked like he was dressed for a job interview. He'd cut his hair. His uniform looked great. He was obviously trying to impress upon people that if Harry Kane, for whatever reason, isn't 100% in this World Cup, I think Kane will be, but I almost feel like Vardy ran onto the pitch trying to prove to people, hey, look, if Kane can't go, I got this. It's going to be okay. And he scored. So good for him. And meanwhile, you know I'm a huge Premier League fan. You know I'm a huge Manchester City fan. Raheem Sterling's renaissance continues a bit because he and Jesse Lingard, as I referenced earlier when Kevin was on with us, 
they looked really good together and set Vardy up for the goal. And that's terrific for England. They lose well, They lose the result. They, they get the draw because they give up a penalty in the 87th minute, but it's a VAR penalty. At some level, we're going to have to start discounting these situations where penalties are awarded after they look at the video because they've only played this game for, what, hundreds and hundreds of years and never had somebody looking at the TV before, and now we're going to have results decided by some twerp on the sideline looking at a video screen? It's a disaster. I'm offended. Anyway, on behalf of all twerps, I am very offended by by that line. Well, I regret the insinuation, I present company excluded. Point being, if I'm England, I'm entirely disgusted by this thing. Now, Gareth Southgate was diplomatic because he needs to be. He's English. But all things considered, it's a really good outcome for England. I'm sure they're more confident after drawing Italy and more or less, not dominating, but being 60-40 in control of that match. That's a really good thing for them to take into the summer especially against, again, a team like Italy. I know they didn't qualify for the World Cup, but that nation has enough World Cup knowledge and how-to how in it that if you can draw with them under quasi-controversial circumstances, that's got to be considered a good thing. Uh, just to do a couple of recaps of other games, France went to St. Petersburg and uh, beat Russia 3-1 with two goals from Kylian Mbappe, who we mentioned before, and a goal and an assist from Paul. I can't even start for Manchester United. Pogba. Pogba. See that? That was terrible. Um, some other interesting things. Mexico's got some friendlies coming up in the U.S., which just seems kind of like a marketing ploy, which is fine. Um, but it's almost like rubbing salt in the wound about the U.S. team not qualifying for the World Cup. And now the only way that you can see a team who's gearing up for the World Cup in the United States is to, you know, go out and see the Mexican squad. Um, I think the only other things that we really wanted to hit really quick, some previews. We've got Premier League games coming up. Chelsea Tottenham is going to be interesting. Uh, What are you looking for in the Chelsea Tottenham game? Well, I wanted to point out that this is basically a must win for Chelsea. They're five points back of fourth place with eight matches to go. If they were to lose the match, that's essentially uh, the end of it for Chelsea. They're not going to catch Tottenham. They're not going to make the top four. Maybe it doesn't matter to Chelsea all that much since, as we've referenced in prior shows, uh, Conte doesn't seem like he's staying. The new manager is probably going to come in and want to cut some dead weight, bring some new people in, change the style, change the dressing room culture, etc. and so forth. Are we even sure that Conte is going to be back? Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't think he will be. I think the new manager is going to come in and the new broom sweeps clean, so to speak. So... Conte, at some level, is almost managing this club for his successor. He's trying to get them in a position to keep them in Champions League so that the next guy can take over. This is kind of what happened with City, by the way. I'm familiar with this. Um, Before Mourinho came in, uh, Pellegrini had to manage the side that was sort of in disarray at the end of the season before, um, I'm sorry, Guardiola came over. I, I think I transposed them. But, yeah, before Guardiola came in, uh, Manuel had to guide City into the fourth spot and hand Guardiola a club that was still in Champions League and say, hey, go with God. Uh, That's essentially what Conte's doing now. Uh, I don't think that Conte can get this side into the top four 
unless they win this weekend and then some other things happen. But even if he does, I don't think fourth place is going to save his job. And I'm not really sure he wants to stay anyway. So that's the intrigue for this. And on the other sideline, Pochettino really needs to hold on to a Champions League place uh, after the way they went out of the Champions League when it looked like they were going to get through and then they gave it away at home. So this is an interesting match, as I often say in these situations, as much for what's going on off the pitch as what's going on on the pitch. There are relegation scraps this weekend in the Premier League. I only want to touch on two of them. Newcastle and Huddersfield Town have a match that's going to matter. Uh, But the big story, and just to touch on Newcastle real fast, I mean, Rafa Benitez has done unbelievable work at Newcastle. Um, They don't give Manager of the Year awards for managers who guide clubs to 15th or 14th place safe finishes in the Premier League. But what Benitez has done since he's gone to Newcastle is nothing short of a miracle because they're really not that good. But he gets enough points to keep them up every year. And if Newcastle's ownership situation ever gets sorted out and they ever actually dump some real money into that club, you could see Newcastle rocking into the top 10 and maybe even further. Oh, my God. I hated Rafa Benitez so much from his time in, at Madrid. Well, I don't know how else to tell you. Like, uh, like, look at what he's done with Newcastle. No, it's and, great that he's done a great job. It's just I, I can't look at his face. So I want to talk about West Ham and Southampton real fast because we didn't get to this last week. West Ham have to host Southampton this week in what is legitimately a relegation scrap. Southampton are terrible. West Ham, in theory, should go out and get these three points and get themselves that much closer to safety. But my goodness, uh, West Ham are still dealing with the fallout from the 3-0 loss to Burnley at home, London Stadium, bad scenes, people... Uh, congregating in front of the owner's box, fans running onto the pitch with flags and stamping them, stamping them on the center dot. It was a an uncomfortable thing to watch from thousands of miles away. I can only imagine what it was like in the stadium. I don't know if you saw this, Russ, but some of the Burnley players in that match were getting out of their seats and putting children in their seats on the Burnley bench to keep them out of the fray. And this is, again, West Ham United... Not Manchester United, not Chelsea, not Arsenal even, but a proud English club and a club that has had a lot of success in its history and has, in the last two or three years, had top 10 finishes. When they had Dimitri Payet, they were really fun to watch. And now they've got the shadow of Joe Hart in goal sometimes. They've got Pablo Zabaleta out there running around trying not to get killed. It's disastrous and you can only imagine what happens if they go down 2-0 to Southampton at home in the first 15 minutes. It's just going to be more of the same. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. It's just sad. I always feel bad. You know, it's it's one thing that I guess we're lucky with in MLS is that there is no relegation. And, uh, you know, it's probably a good thing that Kevin's not still here because uh, Pro-Rel is, I think, like one of the things that gets him the most fired up. But, you know, knowing that your team can have a bad year and, and kind of get back at it again the next year is, is kind of comforting as an MLS fan. But I can't imagine what it feels like to then have to go and watch your team play in a lower tier league for an entire year on the, the hope that they redeem themselves and end up, you know, back at the bottom of the Premier League again, only to, you know, potentially put themselves in a position where they're going to get knocked back down. That's just got to be a lot. I, I imagine there are a ton of, of uh, stomach ulcers going on uh, over with those teams right now. Uh, looking forward to some La Liga stuff. Uh, Sevilla hosts Barcelona. Um, I, you know, I, I spoke very uh, in glowing terms about Sevilla last week. 
uh, they are certainly not going to win this game. I'm hoping that they can at least keep it somewhat close. This isn't because I like Real Madrid. This is just because I don't like to see runaways at the, the top of domestic leagues. And I would just like to see a little bit of intrigue if Atleti and Real are able to catch some fire at the end here. And to see if, you know, Barca stumbles just a, just a little bit. Just for a few weeks. Drop a few points. Uh, you know, a, a last second goal that ends in a, uh, the match ends in a draw. Or maybe a team playing, you know, well beyond themselves. You know, snatching a, a, a victory from the jaws of defeat. I think it would be great. It would be really nice to see happen in La Liga. It's probably not going to happen. Uh, you've got Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid. Uh, playing against Las Palmas and Deportivo, respectively. Those teams are 18th and 19th in La Liga. They are certainly not going to um, you know, pose much of a threat. Although, Real has dropped some points and has given up some late goals to some pretty poor teams uh, in the last two months. So it will be interesting to see if they can you know, finally kind of stomp down a team like Las Palmas and uh, kind of find some, some significant form as they get prepared for their Champions League matchup with uh, uh, Juventus. Uh, All I want to say is that Barcelona is fully capable of pulling a Milton Berle in this situation and winning by exactly how many they need to win by. Uh, It might get close for four minutes or five minutes in a three- or four-week span, but Barcelona is not giving up this league title under any circumstances. I don't disagree, but I'm just a little bit disappointed. Um, Serie A this week will be interesting. Uh, Juventus, Napoli, Roma, none of them are playing particularly good sides. But we are going into a week where Napoli and Roma, or I'm sorry, where Napoli and Juventus are only separated by two points. Um, Napoli this week is going up against uh, Sassuolo. Sassuolo is currently 15th out of 20 teams in Serie A. And you've got uh, uh, Juventus side that's prepping to go against 6th place Milan, uh, AC Milan. So, you know, I guess if we're looking at this realistically, I think both teams probably come out with wins. Although Milan could potentially, you know, end up here with a draw against Juventus uh, and a Napoli win uh, would, I believe, put them equal on point. No, it wouldn't. Would it be, does that put them equal on points? Do a little quick math. Two point, uh, what, three points for a win? 76. Yeah, that would put them equal on points going into uh, match day 31. So, I, I don't know. I like to watch the world burn a little bit. And even though I might like watching Juventus play a little bit more than Napoli, uh, I, I want to at least have one league where we can look forward to some interesting things happening down the stretch. Give us a, an exciting topic to cover going forward. It's hard for me to get behind Milan after their failure to deal with Arsenal successfully in Europa League. Uh, we had the discussion in one of our prior shows about a, a sixth-place round-robin. I did not rate Milan very highly then, and I won't now. I don't have a lot of faith in them to deal with this match this weekend. And if I had to put money I couldn't afford to lose on it, I would take Juventus to win this title and do it fairly comfortably. And finally, we've got Der Klassiker coming up in the Bundesliga. Unfortunately, we're looking at a matchup that uh, we're in seasons past has been a clash of the, the top two titans in the Bundesliga you're looking at a game where probably Marco Royce isn't going to be playing. Uh, Shinji Kagawa is also supposed to be out, um, as well as Imra Toprak. And um, it's it's just going to be a, a weird kind of setup here. Um, I think they've definitely been hurt by the, the loss, the transfer of Abuma Young. Um, Dortmund, just at this point, 
I think they're looking to kind of hang on. They're they're within a point of Schalke, so if uh, if things work out appropriately, or if you're a Bayern fan, you're hoping for a victory here and a little bit of help from Freiburg. If they're able to put away Schalke, then you'll you'll watch Bayern raise the trophy once again this year uh, for the Bundesliga. Um, if things go a little bit differently, if things go awry, if maybe Bayern steps or steps onto the pitch, uh, already planning the celebration and. Dortmund is able to kind of steal some points or, or steal at least a point. And, um, you know, Freiburg kind of stands up and, and uh, or Freiburg kind of falls into what we would expect of them, which would be to lose to Schalke. Then I think you're looking at another interesting stretch here where you're not going to have a clinched title this week, but you will be seeing an interesting battle for a second place in the Bundesliga, which presumably could go down to the wire. Not that it matters all that much, but it, it's still at least somewhat exciting maybe i don't know how excited you're going to get for it phil but i don't much care for mathematics uh, <laughs> i'm an attorney i read that's what i do but even i can handle the math on this dortmund have played 27 matches and drawn nine times that's a third of the matches they play they draw and that's why they have 48 points and that's why they are 18 points behind Bayern. you just cannot go out there and get one point against some of these bad sides you play in these Leagues where it's not the toughest competition in the world. I mean, Bayern rolls over these clubs year on year on year because they're just not that good. Oh, I can't believe how bad Wolfsburg is. But I was going to say, not, you're not, not, the story. not loving Wolfsburg or uh, Werder Bremen this year? Well, Wolfsburg's been good before. They're certainly, 15th this year. It's certainly, an embarrassment. certainly not this year. But my point being, Dortmund can't go out and continue to draw. That That's how you end up adrift miserably adrift, and fighting Schalke, of all clubs, for a second-place finish, which, to be honest, no one... I can't imagine the players in these clubs, especially toward the end of a long season, are looking at the table and saying, man, I really hope we finish second. It would be really a bummer if we finish third. Do you think they really care? I, I can't imagine that they do. I think supporters care a lot. I think managers care a lot. and I think boards care a lot. But... A lot of these Dortmund players and probably a lot of these Schalke players are looking at around in the dressing room and thinking, am I going to be here next season? And is my manager going to be here next season? And are we ever going to catch Bayern next year, the year after that? So, yeah, I'd love to see an interesting run out, but I'm not going to count on the players to care to make it happen. I'm going to count on the sport to do it for me. And on that, we will end uh, this episode of Crossing Broad FC, part of the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. Just a reminder, for those of you who may be so inclined, leave a five-star review and a review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Of course, you can also leave reviews, I believe, in Stitcher. You can't with Google Play. I still don't know why, but we are available on all three of those platforms and uh, most other podcast apps, uh, Overcast, Player FM, things like that should be able to find us um, download the episodes to save yourself some uh, some data on your phones and hopefully uh, this show has uh, provided you a little bit of insight into all the goings-on in the international game we will be back again next week uh, we thank Kevin for hopping on today be sure to follow us on Twitter I'm on Twitter at joy on broad Phil is at Phil Kydel that's k-e-i-d-e-l for those of you who are not so spelling inclined. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening. If you are a Philadelphia sports fan, we'd also encourage you to check out the other podcasts on the network, including Crossing Broadcast, 
Snow the Goalie, a Flyers podcast, Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast, and Kevin's other soccer podcast, It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia. Thanks again for listening. We will talk to you again next week.